Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Good morning. It is always great to be here at Bible Center. Good to be back with you for Jeannie and me. Wonderful to be here. Um, It is a joy, it really is, to be back with you. I'm sure you've probably heard this little poem before, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) And sometimes I think because of our brokenness and fallenness, that is our reality. To dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what it means to dwell below here on earth, here in the church with the saints we know. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, we're looking at today. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. We'll focus on just the end of verse 2 in the message today. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. Your pastors have embarked on a long series, a year-long series on the subject of God's glorious church from Ephesians chapter 4. The first part in this three-part series is on the church united, valuing togetherness over preferences. Pastor John introduced the series a few weeks ago by painting a picture of God's glorious church with a description of the early church from Acts chapter 2. And then he showed us how to flesh that out, how to turn that vision into reality from Ephesians chapter 3 by living fearlessly loving unconditionally, and trusting completely. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike unpacked chapter 4, verse 1, focusing on the foundation and perspective of our unity in the gospel. And he made it very clear that our salvation, it is our salvation which brings us together in a forever family. And it is the level ground at the foot of the cross which is the basis, the starting point for our unity. I've been asked to take the next section of chapter four and contribute to this this, uh, series on unity. And what we're gonna do is focus on the last couple of words or phrases in chapter four, talking about loving tolerance and patience. Patience and loving tolerance. Now, the Bible teaches us that there are needed components of unity, and that's what this section of Ephesians 4 is all about. So, patience and loving tolerance are two necessary components of living out the gospel in unity. We're going to look at both of those today. First of all, the attitude of patience. We're talking about attitudes or character qualities that really form and display and demonstrate the unity that we have in the gospel, in the church of Jesus Christ. The attitude of patience. Let's begin by talking about what patience is. The word translated patience here, or patient in verse 2, literally means long-tempered. 
Now, I know what you may be thinking. You may be thinking, oh boy, that means I get to keep my temper for a long time. Sorry, that's not what it means. It literally means not being upset, taking a long, long time for any temper to arise at all. In fact, patience is this. Patience is enduring annoyances and difficult people without getting upset. That's what patience really is. Endure, let that sink in. It is enduring annoyances and difficult people. You know, those other people. Not us, but those other people. Enduring difficult people without getting upset. So patience is giving others time and space to learn. Patience is giving others the time and space to fail. Patience is giving others the time and space to grow. Patience is enduring annoyances and difficult people without getting upset. Now, I think the best evidence for our lack of patience, it certainly is for me, and I don't think I'm much different from anybody else in this room, the best evidence for our lack of patience is lines. I'm not talking about the lines you draw on a piece of paper. I'm talking about the lines you get in. For instance, at a traffic signal. You know what it's like when you're approaching the traffic signal, right? If you're on a four-lane highway, two lanes on your side, as you approach the traffic signal, you're mentally computing how many cars are in each lane. And not only that, what model car they are. That's a factor to take into account. And you're going to choose the lane that will get you where you want to go as fast as you can, get you through that light as fast as you can. If there's an 18-wheeler in either one of those lanes, you're going to choose the other one. You don't want to be behind that guy trying to pull out from a traffic signal. And then you get up to where you have to stop, and the light turns green, and the person in front of you is just sitting still. Their head is down. You know they're looking at their phone. How long does it take you to honk your horn. I heard about a woman one time whose car died at a traffic signal. She couldn't get it started. And so the guy behind her is honking his horn incessantly. So she calmly got out of her car, walked back to his window and said, my car won't start. I just can't get it going at all. Would you mind going up and trying to start my car and I'll sit back here and lean on your horn. Uh, you know what it's like to be caught in that situation. Same thing is true of a grocery store, right? Or a department store before the days of self-checkout. You remember how you'd evaluate which line to get in? You'd find out how many people are in each line. You're, you're computing this as you get close, and you're also taking into account how full their carts are. And so you choose a line, and you feel like, I got it this time. I'm in the fastest line, and the cash register breaks down. And when you finally get in a line that you think's moving, you, you look at the person in the line beside you where you are, equal to yourself, and you figure out how fast you're moving. Are you moving faster than that person or slower? And it gets under your skin if you're moving slower. Same thing happens at a bank drive through right? You've been in a line there, right? You come into the bank and you do the same thing. You're computing how many cars are in each lane. What model car are they? 
And then if there's same number of cars in each lane, you look at the chute to see if the shuttle's coming down in one of those lanes, right? So that you can get in that one and surely that will be the fastest lane. I did that one time, got behind a guy, the chute was coming down and I think, man, I nailed it this time. I'm gonna get through really easy. Sat there for two or three minutes, he sent the shuttle back. So I sat there for two or three more minutes. It came back. He took a little time, sent it back a third time. That guy sent the shuttle back four times. And I finally was so exasperated, I turned to Jeannie and I said, what's with this guy? Is he trying to apply for a bank loan through the drive-thru? Okay, I don't know about you, but lines really test my patience. I think probably the best evidence for lack of patience is lines. The problem is, not lines, the problem is we sometimes demonstrate the same attitude and behavior to our fellow members of the body of Christ in the church. Why? Because we wanna be first, we wanna be best, we want our view to be recognized, we want our ministry to be highlighted, we want our schedule to be prioritized. It's all about me getting where I wanna go in a timely fashion, in the way I wanna get there. And so we tend to have the same attitude toward others in the church. So patience requires that we renounce the tyranny of our own agendas. Patience requires that we renounce the tyranny of our own agendas, and we all have our own agendas, don't we? We all have our sense of priority as to about how things should be done. We all have our sense of timing as to when things should be done. And if things don't happen according to our priorities, how we feel like they should be done, or our sense of timing, when they should be done, if our agenda clashes with somebody else's agenda, then we have a tendency to lose our patience and get upset. Why? Because we are fallen and broken people with a sin nature that we will not get rid of till we get to heaven. And that causes us to be more self-centered than we would like to admit. We want our way now. We don't want to wait on anybody or anything for us to get where we want to get to and how we want it done. It's a part of our fallen nature. You say, okay, John, I got some work to do. I realize it. I do too. I got some work to do. But you just don't understand who I have to put up with. You don't understand the kind of people I work with or the kind of people I go to church with. You don't understand the kind of people in my home. So what about that person who really provokes you? What about that situation? Are you required to show patience to that person? I'm talking about the kind of person that your personalities just really clash. I'm talking about the kind of person that really gets his or her kicks out of pushing all your buttons. The kind of person who is always on your proverbial last nerve. I'm talking about that kind of person. They just really provoke you. They seem to get a lot of joy out of doing it. How do you treat that kind of person? Well, maybe we should ask ourselves, how does God treat us? 
Do you think you ever do anything to provoke God? Do you think you ever do anything for him to be displeased with you? Of course we do. Well, how does he respond to us? One of my favorite passages, one that I have to remind myself of an awful lot, is Psalm 103. We're going to look at just a couple of three verses from that chapter, Psalm 103, verses 8 and 10. Here's how the Lord responds to us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And then down in verses 13 and 14, it goes on to say, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why? For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God knows our nature. He knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. And so he is compassionate, slow to anger, merciful. He demonstrates patience with us. The example of how God treats us should be the example we would follow. But there's also the example that Jesus demonstrated as he suffered on the cross. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2 about Jesus' example. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, let me pause right there. It's not the example of Christ that saves us. It is his substitutionary death on the cross that saves us. But the way he died, his spirit and attitude toward those who were tormenting him becomes an example to us as to how we should relate to others even when we are suffering at their hands. That's the context of 1 Peter 2. So let's go on. He leaves us an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, Peter's making the point that Jesus suffered not because of anything he had done. So all of his suffering was unjust. It was not called for. Shouldn't have happened, at least as far as human response is concerned. But notice, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now get this, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That, my friend, is the example of how we should treat others with patience. The ultimate patience of Jesus being able to say, none of this suffering is just from a human perspective. I've been misunderstood. I've been misrepresented. I've been mistreated to the ultimate extreme. None of it is justified on a human level. We all know how it was designed in the purpose of God for our salvation. But on a human level, none of his suffering was justified. But Jesus was willing to rest his case with the Father. So that person who really gets under your skin, the next time it happens, pause for a moment. When you feel the irritation, frustration, and anger, impatience arising within you, pause for a moment, count to 10, cry out to the Holy Spirit to transform your thinking, to mold and shape you into the likeness of Christ so that you respond as he would respond. John Ehrlichman and Chuck Colson were embroiled together in the Watergate scandal that ultimately led to the humiliating resignation of President Nixon. 
You'll remember that. Many of you, most of you will remember that, I'm sure. Both men spent time in prison for their part in the Watergate scandal. During his time in prison, Chuck Colson came to know Christ as his Savior, became a Christian. During his time in prison, John Ehrlichman just seethed in anger, and much of that anger was directed at Chuck Colson because he accused Chuck Colson of getting some kind of jailhouse religion. So when they got out of prison, John Ehrlichman began to write defamatory articles against Colson as often as he could. Whatever reason he had to, he would rip Colson apart. He openly despised him. Less than a year before Ehrlichman died in 1999, Chuck Colson found out what his plight was. The former domestic affairs advisor to President Nixon, whose office was above the Oval Office, was now all alone in a nursing home, dying of renal failure. His third wife had left him. His children were separated from him, didn't come to see him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. And into that loneliness and void came Chuck Colson. And he visited with John Ehrlichman, showed love to him, tried to meet whatever needs he could, and shared the gospel with him. At first, Ehrlichman was very resistant because he hated Colson. But over a period of a few months, he began to soften, and his heart became open to the love and forgiveness and kindness and patience that Colson was showing. That led to his journey to faith. A few days before Ehrlichman died, he called Chuck Colson and said, the doctors haven't given me much more time. Colson was sick with the flu at the time, so he sent a friend who led Ehrlichman to Christ. And a few days later, he entered the presence of the Lord. Why? Well, in God's providence, largely because of the patience of a man who had been hurt deeply by Ehrlichman, but put that aside to show him the love of Christ. Patience is a necessary component of living out the gospel in unity. The second necessary component is loving tolerance. Again, let me, let me uh, start with what that means, what loving tolerance is. The text says, bearing with one another in love. Or some, some translations even have the word forbearance. Both of those words are a bit archaic. The word translated bearing with here means literally to put up with or to tolerate. That's a good word. But notice this putting up with or tolerating is to be done in love. Love is the spirit in which we tolerate other people because love, especially the word that's used here, the highest form of love in the Bible is to sacrifice yourself for the good of another person, to lay aside your own preferences, your own desires, your own priorities, your own schedule, to lay aside what's important to you to serve and love others, to put others first. That's what this is talking about. So we are to put up with, tolerate others, not, not despisingly in any way, but out of love because we sincerely want to put their needs ahead of our own. Now, I recognize that tolerance is a buzzword. It's a buzzword today. 
A buzzword is a word that has become very popular for a time, but often apart from its original meaning or context. And that's exactly what's happened with the word tolerance. In our culture today, tolerance has become a very popular word, but it's been ripped out of its original meaning and context and means something very different than what it used to mean, even what it meant in the Bible. So just so that you don't understand, misunderstand what I'm saying this morning, you don't get the wrong idea, I want to take a few moments and draw a a sharp distinction between the, the culture's view of tolerance and the Bible's view of tolerance, because they are very different. The culture in which we live, tolerance is based on relativism. Relativism is one of the major thought processes and foundations of our contemporary culture. Relativism basically says all truth and all moral right and wrong are relative. In other words, they're not fixed. Truth can change depending on the circumstance or depending on the person. Right and wrong may change depending on the circumstance or depending on the person. So basically, what that boils down to, everybody gets to choose their own truth. And everybody gets to choose their own standard of right and wrong. That's what the culture tells us tolerance means. If we're tolerant of other people, we will allow them with a smile on our face, with no objection, and with total agreement and celebration to choose whatever truth they want to claim as truth and choose whatever standard of morality or lifestyle they want to choose. And that's the step further that we've seen in the last two or three years. Tolerance now means that we must accept the other's choices and or lifestyle as being right for them and celebrate that with them. So basically what we're being told is all of us have to agree that there is no absolute standard of truth and there is no absolute standard of moral right and wrong. That is far different from what the Bible means by tolerance. When the Bible talks about tolerance, it is based on the presupposition, on the worldview that we believe God's Word, God who has revealed Himself in His Word, has given to us an absolute standard of truth and an absolute standard of right and wrong, of morality. So tolerance means that I may disagree with you because what you believe or what you're saying is wrong according to the absolute standard of truth in God's Word. And I may disagree with you the way you're living or the lifestyle you've chosen or the moral path you've chosen because it violates God's absolute standard of right and wrong revealed in his word. But even though I may disagree with you and say you are wrong, either in your your belief system or in your lifestyle practice, even though I may disagree with you and think you are wrong, Because you are a fellow image bearer, a fellow human being made in the image of God, I will treat you with love, grace, respect, tolerance. That's biblical tolerance. No matter what you believe, no matter how you live, I will treat you with grace. I will treat you with respect. I will treat you with love. But I will never agree with that lifestyle or that belief system and I will stand on absolute truth. That's biblical tolerance. 
So loving tolerance requires that we renounce our preferences. Notice, not the absolute standard of truth, not the absolute standard of morality, right or wrong, but loving tolerance means that we need, we must renounce our preferences, our likes, dislikes, our priorities. We must renounce those. So in the church, what does that look like? Well, loving tolerance means that I don't insist everyone looks just like me. Aren't you grateful for that? It means that the music style doesn't need to always fit what I like. It means that the services and ministry schedule don't always need to fit what's convenient for my life and my schedule. It means that the ministries that are highlighted don't always have to be the ones that I feel are worthwhile. It means setting aside your own preferences for the good of the body as a whole. It has been, I think, tw yeah, 20 years ago, last month, that we started a contemporary service at Johnston Chapel in Princeton. We had been running two services for about nine years because of space uh, constraints, and we decided to transition one of those services into a contemporary service. Now, you have to understand that Johnston Chapel was a very traditional church very traditional style of worship and style of ministry and so forth. And we were doing some other transitioning and we decided we really need a contemporary service. And there were a lot of folks who were upset with that and a lot of folks who just didn't understand what it was. So we did a lot of education. We showed video clips. We tried, I tried to do some preaching on what the Bible teaches about music and worship and that it's not about style. It's about content and how we express our worship. It's not about that's about lyrics, it's not about style, all that. I did all of that kind of stuff, a lot of education. So we launched our contemporary service, but there were still some folks who just didn't like it. Among those folks was a, a, a really wonderful elderly couple, Mason and Joanne. Mason was an, an expert violinist, had been well-trained in classical violin. His wife was an expert pianist, and they would often do duets in our traditional style of worship. It was beautiful. So we just expected they would transition to that early service. We did our, our contemporary service later because the target audience, young families trying to get all their kids ready for church and college students and so forth, they're not going to come at 8.30 or 9 o'clock. So we did that last. Well, Mason came up to me one day and said, Pastor, we can't come to that early service. And I'm thinking, well, you know, most older people wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning, can't get back to sleep anyway. I mean, they're ready for the early service. So I don't, I'm not sure what's going on there, but he said, these are lambs that like to sleep in, he said. So I knew he didn't like the idea of the contemporary service. He was classically trained and so forth. And so I wondered what would happen. Did they leave the church? Did they get upset? No, they didn't. You know what they did? They went ahead and came to the contemporary service. What they did was to put earplugs in during the music. <laughs> now, you have to understand that we didn't have a really good sound system in those days. It was not geared toward the kind of amplification we needed for a contemporary service. So basically, to wear earplugs meant you didn't hear it at all. <laughs> so they would come to the service. They enjoyed the service. They couldn't hear it, but they enjoyed, they enjoyed the service. But they would come out the door and they were just smiling. They would shake my hand as they passed by and we'd hug each other and we, we just loved each other. And You know, 
their gracious and tolerant response to me caused me to want to respond the same way to them. And so I never talked with them about the value of the contemporary service and you need to give the music a try. Remember what we said about what the Bible says about music and so forth and Psalm 150 with all those instruments and all that, you know. And, and, you know, I never did that. I just thought, you know, that's not not a fight I want to pick. Not with them. They're so gracious and tolerant. But I would ask him, did you take those earplugs out when I started preaching? And he would laugh, you know, and say, oh, yeah, but when you got to the third point, I was tempted to put them back in again. And so we'd just laugh, you know, have a great time. That's the way it ought to be in the church. I wasn't that way with everybody. I'll be the first to admit my spirit was not always the best. But that's the way it ought to be, setting aside our own preferences to lovingly tolerate others. What about beyond the church? Beyond the church, loving tolerance means that I look beyond what the other driver does. I just, you know, if I have a real problem with the horn, just disable the thing. I look beyond a friend that's late or a neighbor that's inconsiderate or a family member that has an annoying habit or personality trait. Just look beyond that. Don't make that a big deal. Ken Metema was one of the early pioneers of contemporary Christian music when I started listening to it back in the late 70s and early 80s. In fact, he started a recording company. Uh, He's blind. He was blind at birth, but his parents taught him to ride a bike. He learned how to play the piano. He learned how to water ski. Uh, He became a classical pianist before his interest turned more toward contemporary Christian music. One day when he was in college, he, uh, he bumped into another blind student. And that other blind student said, hey, what's up, man? Don't you realize I'm blind? And rather than railing back at him or even mentioning his own blindness, Ken Metema simply said, oh, I'm very sorry. I didn't see you. That's loving tolerance. That's what it means to put others' needs first in loving tolerance. I think whenever we we talk about tolerance, even from a biblical perspective, in some people's minds, this question arises. So I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Are there exceptions to loving tolerance? Well, yes and no. And I'm not running for office. But yes, there are exceptions to loving tolerance in the way or in your response In your response to people, there are exceptions to loving tolerance. If someone is guilty of a clear violation of Scripture, if they're sinning against you, if they're stealing from you, if there's abuse involved, God's not saying, you put up with that now. You be tolerant toward that. He's not saying that. Or if that other person is is violating proper uh, boundaries in your life, You know, they're the kind of person that comes over to your home every evening about the time you sit down for dinner with your family and they just stay and stay and stay and stay and you finally have to just about force them out the door to get to bed at night. They're crossing appropriate boundaries. Both of those instances, clear sin or crossing appropriate boundaries with you require confrontation from the Bible. We need to confront people about sin. We need to confront people about violating our God-given responsibility to love our families by taking all of our time. 
those people need to be confronted with biblical truth. So yes, there are exceptions to loving tolerance in some cases, but no, there is no exception in the way you respond. Because we still need to respond in love, which means I will do what is best for that other person. Now, in the case of sin, what's best for that other person is loving confrontation from the Bible so that they can get right with God and and get their life straight. Same thing is true with violating proper boundaries. So the loving thing to do is to confront. But the spirit, our spirit, should always be loving and gracious, not harsh and vindictive. And if there's genuine repentance, we will forgive, we will show grace, we will not hold it over that person's head anymore. So there are exceptions in your response to people, but never in the way you respond, even if it requires biblical confrontation. So what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, the last part of verse 2, is that patience and loving tolerance are essential for unity. But there are so many things that we disagree on or that we have differences about, or that we make distinctions about that can fracture the unity in the church. And I'm going to take just a few moments to mention a few of those with this disclaimer. Your pastors have given me the general theme of this series and the specific verse, portion of that verse that I was to preach on. Nothing else. So all of the examples I'm going to use are examples from my own 45 years of full-time pastoral ministry in three different churches, three different states. But I've seen all of these things, and the list could go on and on if we had the time. I've seen people disagree and get all upset about ministries that they either feel passionate about or don't feel passionate about. How rooms in the building are used. The number of services the church has during the week. Too many, too few the times of those services, the worship styles in those services. I've seen people get all bent out of shape over age differences. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, those older people, they're keeping us back from progress. Oh, those younger people, those millennials, millennials get blamed for everything. Those those millennials, they're pushing for change too fast. Get all bent out of shape over age differences. I've seen people disagree and differ on Bible translations, on politics, on personality, just personality clashes. I've seen people disagree and fracture their unity over schooling options for their kids. I've seen people get all bent out of shape over how long they've been in the church or how long this other person has not been in the church. And you know, those of us who've not been in the church very long need to respect respect those who've been here 30 plus years they do have some history and some awareness of what potential pitfalls may take place. We need to respect that. But those who've been here 30 plus years also need to respect those who've just been here a couple or three years and not treat them as second-class citizens. They are full members of the body of Christ who deserve to have a voice at the table. So age differences should not be a big deal. I've seen people make a big deal over how other people dress or whether or not they have tattoos or piercings or even where they live, or what kind of vehicle they drive. We had a guy at Johnson Chapel who would always pull in in his Harley. You could hear him coming a mile away. And some people just, uh, here comes that 
I won't call his name, on this Harley. I loved it. I wish I'd have had one myself. You say, well, John, I'm not going to make that an issue, but I sure don't like it. So what you're telling me is you're just going to slow boil inside. And I'm going to tell you if that's the case, you haven't really dealt with the heart issue yet. A slow boil will eventually boil over anyway. You may be kind of like the truck driver I heard about who went into an all-night diner in Broken Bow, Nebraska, sat down to eat his hamburger and french fries, drink his coffee, and three motorcycle gang guys came in, really rough types, and they came over to his table spoiling for a fight. One of them picked up his hamburger. The other one got a few of his french fries, and the third one picked up his coffee and started drinking it. The truck driver just got up, walked to the cash register, paid his bill, walked out the door. The waitress who waited on him at the cash register was watching him walk out into the night and watch the truck pull out. When she went back to the table, the guy said to her, he's not much of a man, is he? She said, well, I don't know about that, but he's not much of a truck driver. He just ran over three motorcycles out in the parking lot. <laughs> Uh, that's what a slow boil will do for you. You, you, you haven't really addressed the, the heart issue if that's where you are. What the truck driver should have done if he was going to live out what we've talked about today is say to those guys, you know what, I don't think I could have finished all this anyway and I'd hate to see it go to waste. Help yourself. Go to the ticket or get counter, pay his ticket and say to the waitress, you know what, I, those guys seem pretty hungry. Prepare them each the same meal you did for me and I'll pay for it and then walk out into the night and drive his truck off without even thinking about the motorcycles. You say, John, that's just not in me. <laughs> I don't think I can do that, and I'm not sure I want to do that. Well, I get it. I'm with you. That's where the gospel comes in. The gospel is not just the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. It's not less than that, but it's a lot more than that. The book of Romans tells us that the gospel reaches all the way back into eternity past. Our plan of salvation goes all the way back to when God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty chose us in love according to his foreknowledge. And it goes all the way through the death of Christ and our response in faith, the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us and enable us in our lives, and then all the way to the ultimate time when we will be glorified at the coming of Christ and the resurrection. That's the gospel, the full plan of salvation. And it includes the role of the Holy Spirit in your life right now, transforming you little by little to be more like Christ. So how do you get patience and loving tolerance? How do you do better? Well, please, don't just try harder. Allow the Spirit to change your heart as you draw closer to Christ through His Word and through prayer and through discipleship with other believers growing in fellowship with them. Those are the means that we have responsibility toward, but it is the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts. You will find yourself, as you do those things, relating and submitting to the Spirit of God, you will find yourself developing more patience and loving tolerance and contributing to the unity of the church. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so relevant. It speaks to us on the level at which we live. Thank you for speaking to us today about character qualities that we really need in order to be a unified body. 
I pray that you will do your work that only you can do by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.